This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. We just want to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal land, under Gadigal sky, surrounded by waterways of the Gadigal. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather. We pay our respects to Gadigal elders and acknowledge that this is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. So my name's Ali Gripper. I'm a journalist and author with a real respect and affection for the Australian Museum. And today we're having a chat about how to help save frogs. But as you probably all know, it's not just about frogs, it's about climate change because everything comes back to climate change and the environment. So hopefully, um, after we've had our chat with the remarkable Dr Jodie Rowley, you'll leave the room with five things you can do today to help make the world a little bit better, um, just, not only just for frogs, but for the whole environment and for yourself. So um, let's start by having a chat with Dr Jodie Rowley. So she's the woman behind the most successful citizen science project in the country, Frog ID. <laughs> so we're going to learn about what motivates her. Um, and after we've had a bit of a chat, we're going to learn um, how to identify five frogs by their calls. So I thought we'd just um, start with a little bit of background about um, Jody. So I was wondering if you can share with us your first encounter with frogs and what that was like. I wish I had a first encounter a little bit earlier, actually. Um, it wasn't until I sort of landed in environmental science at uni. It wasn't sort of when it came to year 12, I didn't know whether I wanted to do graphic design or art or environmental science. I got a decent mark, so I thought, well, I like the bush, let's do environmental science. So it wasn't, I, I didn't do any of that sort of water watch or any kind of other environmental things actually growing up. Um, my parents didn't take me camping you know, very city people. I spent the first five years of my life in Surrey Hills, um, then moved to the northern beaches, but I still didn't really see frogs. So it wasn't until I was out sort of a university field trip with, um, you know, a bunch of people at night with headlamps on, which is something that I'd never done in my life, I'd never really been camping, that I first saw frogs. And they're just, it, it was amazing, like, to go along a stream at night and see these just precious looking vulnerable creatures shimmering in, in your headlamp with you know eyeballs and toe pads and um, almost they just looked like they were almost plastic like how could these things be real um, and I just fell in love with them it wasn't because they were such important part of healthy ecosystems it wasn't because they were in so much trouble it was because they were just amazing and and that was sort of the beginning of the obsession and then it wasn't until later that I realized hang on you know not only do they look like they're really vulnerable that they look like they're really sensitive you know they they are and they're in a lot of trouble and um, around that time a sort of a global amphibian assessment was done which for the first time highlighted across the board how much trouble frogs were in so that was I guess that resolved the the love then sort of led to the resolve to do what I can to help frogs because they can't do it themselves. Mm, yeah and you were saying earlier when we were chatting that your passion for frogs has taken you to interesting parts of the world so where have they taken you? What sort of places have you been to to study them and understand them more? 
Well, I grew up in Sydney and, and then the next step was North Queensland, which is a pretty froggy place. So I moved up to Townsville to do a PhD on frogs in the wet tropics. Um, that's a particularly important part of Australia. There's a lot of frogs that are only from that area that had adapted to the rainforest. And it was also an area where we lost a bunch of frog species and others are threatened, particularly by disease. So I spent some time sticking little radio transmitters on little waist belts on tiny frogs. So <laughs> half a gram little transmitters and then stalking them for a couple of weeks at a time in the rainforest. So um, I very quickly learned that frogs could go places quite easily that humans could not, as we would sort of try and scramble through to find where the frogs had gone. Um, and that was to try and understand why some species, even in the same stream, were disappearing and others seemed to be doing okay with this disease. Um, after that, it was a decision of, okay, what do, what do I do? Um, and I took the sort of academically stupid decision of moving to Cambodia um, and working for a conservation organisation in, in Cambodia. So instead of a postdoc in the States or in Hong Kong, um, I decided that I was most useful in Southeast Asia, which was a part of the world that at that sort of same time had been um, highlighted as a black hole in terms of our knowledge of biodiversity. So the forest was disappearing at a ridiculous rate and we still didn't have any kind of clue as to what kind of frogs we were losing. Um, and, and so I moved to Cambodia um, and worked there, particularly Cambodia, Vietnam and China um, with a lot of really amazing young um, conservation biologists, students um, in the forest there working on, um, initially it was going to be ecology and conservation, but then it became really clear to me that I, we didn't know what the frogs were. You know, I was in the field and I was finding these frogs and I'm like, okay, that's like the spotty one and that's the whatever and none of the guidebooks, well, not there wasn't really guidebooks, but, you know, I realised that there was so much diversity that we didn't know and so that resulted in my colleagues and I describing so far at least 30 species um, of frog from, mm. from that part of the world, uh, like the vampire flying frog and Helen's flying frog and Kwang's tree frog that has turquoise bones and green blood, like just amazing amazing frogs um, and then I guess I, I've, I've done little trips which is yeah. I don't really love being a tourist so it's really nice when you're like a yeah. frog nerd yeah. because you get to go meet other frog nerds mm -hmm. in their country and they show you frogs so it's like really fun so yeah. Brazil and things like that yeah um, and then moving back to Sydney, mm. um, I am very fortunate here. We, we've done expeditions in um, you know, the Solomon Islands um, as part of uh, the Australian Museum's work to try and um, co-study the frogs uh, of a particular forest to try and prove how important they are and that they, they are worth conserving and not logging. Um, I still do work in Vietnam. Um, last, the last trip I, I really did that was far was sort of Groot Island off the Cape uh, off the coast of the Northern Territory. Uh, and on last week I was in Macquarie Marshes in Western New South Wales and Dubbo area. And next week I'll be in the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales as well. So the frogs take me, me far, yes. I follow the frogs. Interesting places, yes. Um, so the big question is climate change. What have you noticed about how climate change is affecting frogs? We're still learning, yeah. um, but we certainly know that frogs are amongst the first animals that are responding or noticeably responding to climate change. So frogs are whatever temperature that they are sitting on something at. You know, they don't generate their own body heat. They're intimately tied to temperature and moisture. Um, they are to at least some degree really tied to rainfall and water because they need to lay their eggs either in somewhere really, really wet or in water bodies. Um, and so they are really tied to very kind of sort of specific um, 
triggers that, that make them breed and that they need to breed. So um, we know that frogs are breeding at different times of the year, particularly in some of the colder areas around the world. They're um, sort of coming into breed when, you know, at different times interacting with other species. Um, we know that they're shrinking. Um, so amphibians over time seem to be shrinking um, as a response to climate change. Um, and it's one of the sort of big research questions that, that we'll talk about frog ID, but certainly having the information that mm. we need to understand exactly what's going on with frogs. So yep. they do make really fantastic bioindicators, not just of sort of environmental, like, you know, like weather, climate change, um, but also ecosystem health in general. Yes, absolutely. So that was my next question, sort of why is it important that we look after them? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, some people when I say I study frogs, they're kind of like, what? Say it again? Like frogs? Like, and I'm so I can like hop, hop. Yeah. Like the things. Yes, I said that right. Really? You know? Yeah. And like, you know, then why would you do? Like, why do we care? Like, that's such a silly. Like, who pays? Like, seriously, I've had these kind yeah. of like, that's ridiculous. Why would you care about frogs? Um, and in some ways, well, that's that's fair enough. If mm. if you don't realise, you know, if you don't have that connection with frogs, um, that your life is definitely far far poorer for it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, frogs, even though they're tiny and even if you don't fall in love with them individually like I did, um, they are a really important part of healthy ecosystems. And so, you know, when you sort of, if you imag made imaginary piles of all of the different kind of animals or the vertebrates in an ecosystem, you know, birds, mammals, reptiles, mm. in many ecosystems the frogs would actually be the bigger pile. Right. Um, which yeah. you don't sort of think of yeah. unless it becomes really apparent if you go to the outback or or somewhere that doesn't rain a lot in a flood. So like right now, probably a lot of um, New South Wales, you'll realise just how many frogs there are or there should be. Um, and so they are kind of like a bit of like the glue that holds mm. the ecosystems together. Mm. They're a tie between freshwater and terrestrial ecosystems, you know, transferring energy in the form of eggs into the water and then the tadpoles are graze um, and then they come back onto the land to, to sort of feed all of the birds, all of the, you know, half the ecosystem. And we, we know what happens when frogs mm. disappear, which mm. we shouldn't, um, but we do. In Central America, where massive amphibian declines occurred due to disease, the streams began to fill up with algae because the tadpoles weren't around to eat them, right. uh, eat the algae. All the other animals that relied on frogs for food, like the snakes and things, would slowly start to starve to death and sort of the, I guess, the, the consequences were really widespread and they're ir irreversible. So the amphibian sort of diversity and abundance still hasn't gone back to what it should be or normal um, in these areas and, and nothing else has stepped up to fill the role mm. of frogs. Um, mm. And actually just this year a paper was published that also looked at the human impacts of that and showed that malaria rates actually really increased around the areas that frogs had disappeared. Um, yes. So it's actually tadpoles rather than the frogs. Most frogs can't be bothered eating a mosquito, it's too tiny and it's, it actually, they do suck the blood of frogs as well. So they usually don't eat mosquitoes but it's the tadpoles that will eat mosquitoes or they'll compete with mosquitoes. Um, mm. So we do need frogs yes. um, for sure. Yes, and um, tell us a little bit about frog ID. Was that your idea to, to start? It, it was, a, what did you call it earlier? Shazam for frogs. Frog Shazam. Yeah. 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 So Frog ID, um, which is of course hopefully what everyone has on their phones, um, the, the Frog ID app um, and Citizen Science Project, which is, is run by the Australian Museum, 
uh, all came out of a conversation with myself and um, the Australian Museum's director, Kim McKay, and I was telling her that every frog has a different call and, um, you know, we, we desperately, you know, frogs are in a lot of trouble, we've lost at least four species of frog in Australia, you know, we really need information because frogs are so tricky to study, there's not that many frog biologists like myself, and we really need the information. Um, and she said to me, oh, well, we should make a frog's Shazam. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. of course, Shazam's the app that you, you record the music and it tells you what song it is, and that's obviously... We're not quite at the Shazam level, although we are looking at machine learning and artificial intelligence and stuff when it comes to IDing the calls. Um, but um, if it was just me to develop something like that, it probably would have been, you know, my family and five friends that would use it. But, it, you know, the whole museum got behind this, this app mm, um, because I don't know how to make an app or yep. I don't know how to do yeah. any, basically anything that's involved in frog ID except the science part and the talking about frogs part. Yeah. Um, yep. And so, yeah, it, it was sort of a year in the making and then launched almost five years ago, mm -hmm. um, five years next week, which is pretty amazing. Um, and I remember, uh, I was mentioning just before this, that, that the director said, oh, yeah, we'll get like a million frog calls. And I'm like, oh, you're insane. Um, and, and then it wasn't until now we're at like 750,000. And That's so amazing. I'm like, oh, man. Wow. You know, you never. That's incredible. 750,000 yeah. recordings. Yeah. 750,000 yeah. records of frogs. Yeah. Um, so uh, sometimes a submission of an audio submission has no frogs. It's a cricket or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and up to 13 species of frog calling in a single recording um, so far. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's resulted in 750,000 records of frogs. And to put that into perspective, before we started Frog ID, yeah. there were less than 500,000 right. records of frogs yeah. in existence. Mm. Um, many of them duplicates with really vague locations such as Australia or northern New South Wales, you know, not not anything like we've got now. Mm. And now we have all these like geo-referenced locations of frogs across Australia at exact points that show breeding habitat and yeah. we have an associated audio recording, which yeah. makes it a very museum project too because we have these kind of, um, you know, like voucher specimens or sort of evidence associated with each recording. Um, and so it's been a massive mm. game changer. Mm. And I, I didn't realise how many people Yes. Cared so much. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And what sort of people are um, recording the frogs and sending them in? Absolutely. Is it a particular type of person? Everyone. Um, you know, I can see names and, um, you know, when I'm in the sort of back end of the CMS, so I can kind of guess maybe. Yeah. But it's really the, actually the audio snippets because people record, but then their kids are talking in the background <laughs> or their, yeah. you know, their pigs escape or yeah. like, you know, they're, they're in <laughs> their truck. Yeah. So you get to hear these little snippets of people's <laughs> lives. And yeah. honestly, like, I think it's absolutely everyone. It's, it's, it's traditional owners, you know, indigenous rangers out there. Um, it's, it's, you know, people living on outback stations, it's yeah. farmers that want to understand how their land use is impacting frogs, yeah. it's the kid down the road, it's yeah. me, it's other scientists, particularly frog biologists are less good because, I don't know, they're like, I know things and I don't need to use it, but I've got to say like botanists and mammal people that are on like really remote places doing cool stuff, they're using frog ID a lot. I think it's, it's, it's kind of everyone, which yes. is awesome. Yeah. And what's the overall aim of, is basically what you're saying is the citizen science means you can collect that data from places that you normally couldn't go as a museum. Is that, the, what's one of the great benefits of this as opposed to just working from the museum? Is so, 
Yeah, sorry, I you, didn't phrase that very well, but... Um, you're right. Yeah. No, so what, it is... Citizen science is really great at sampling private land, yes. which is something yeah. that's really hard. Yeah. I, I do a fair bit of, but... Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's you know that landholder relationship. It's knocking on the door. It's proving that you're not like the government or a hippie that's right. coming onto their yeah, property. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so you know, I could do a bit of that. But but citizen science, everyone tends to be sort of sampling their backyard. As yeah. an example, when Frog yeah. ID first started, I was talking to a colleague in Perth, yeah. uh, Paul Dowdy at the Western Australian Museum, and he was telling me that moaning frogs had disappeared from Perth. So that they weren't around there, and moaning frogs have like the most excellent call. So yeah. it really sounds like some, your backyard's haunted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so he was saying they've sort of gone. And as sort of after Frog ID had been going for a little while, I said, Paul, you're wrong. It's just that you can't get to the places where the frogs are calling. But they're in people's backyards. They're fine in Perth. Yeah. It's just that you, you know you you are not looking in people's backyards. Yeah. Probably Amazing. a good thing. Um, yeah. It's the scale of the data, the speed yep. of the data collection. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't collect this kind of information in 10,000 lifetimes. Yeah. Um, and we don't have 10,000 lifetimes to no. save frogs. And it's <laughs> a scope by the sound of it too. You're just going to play, you're getting access to places that you just wouldn't have imagined you could get to. Yeah, so yeah. there's the data and, you know, yeah. we've produced a lot of scientific publications. You know, um, after the black summer bushfires, uh, I was ready to get out there and go figure out what was going on with our frogs. I was imagining them puff, you know, in puffs of smoke. I managed to do one quick trip where I managed to see some endangered frogs um, go into this rainforest habitat that had burnt. And I saw these frogs with burns on them and mm. sort of emerging from the base of trees. And I'm like, all right, and they come back and I'm going to study what's going on. And then lockdown. Yes. So yeah. we were like just, it was awful. You know, mm. we couldn't get out there and figure out what had happened to our frogs. Yeah. But people were recording was, frogs. Oh, I see. During across, the lockdown. Across yeah. the fire front. And yeah. so we used that information to actually be the, to my knowledge, the first paper with actual data in it after the black summer bushfires on the impact of biodiversity. Fantastic. And that was thanks to all these people out there recording in their backyards. And we had one guy that used to email us that used Frog ID and, and every couple of weeks he would grab a pizza and then do a drive <laughs> in a big loop around the sort of fire front yeah. sort of area where it, his place and he would get those repeat recordings and try and figure out where, yeah. where, the, where the frogs were. Um, and, and that was a good news story. So yeah. although the, the really rare sort of mountaintop frogs weren't as well sampled, we, we got a really good indication that, you know, a lot of the more widespread frogs just were at least in the short term, I think yes. it was 125 days after the fire, yeah. um, that they persisted, that they were okay. And yeah. we also got some data on some of those rarer frogs as well. But yeah. if we didn't have people, I mean, in those kind of crises, which mm. we're going to have more and more of, mm. the bushfires, the droughts, the floods, yep. um, you can't get scientists out there but like quick enough across the scale. Yeah. So you need you need everybody's help. Yes, absolutely amazing. And how's it been received around the world? Like, have you had interest from other countries about? Is this a first? Like, is Frog ID a first? It is. is it? There's nothing quite like Frog ID um, out there, and we have had interest from Panama, the Seychelles, like a number of countries emailing and saying, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. Can, can we do, you know, what you're what? doing? And so maybe eventually there will be, you know, this is Frog ID Australia. Um, one of the challenges for some countries, yeah. like Vietnam, where I work a lot, is that the calls are not known for all of the species, which makes it a challenge because you probably won't know what a bunch of the, you, you need that sort of work done on the frogs first. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and then you need a bunch of people at the moment to be able to ID and listen to those calls. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is. I guess it's something in the future that that. That, that maybe there will be. be international versions of yeah. Frog ID, but at the moment Australia is leading the way, and it is the certainly the most rapid collection of, of frog data um, yeah. in the world, at least during things like Frog ID Week. But I mean, it's and you know every year we're just getting more and yeah. more submissions across Australia, which is helping us answer more questions mm. like the impact of climate change, mm. invasive species, bushfires, droughts, floods, everything. Yes. Yeah. And how is it for you personally? Like, it must be very exciting, is it? Or is it... Did you ever imagine when you began studying frogs you'd end up, you know, um, being part of this incredible no. um, database? It's, it's a massive yeah. privilege, but not something I planned. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't have had the you foresight have, or thought yeah. that I could do something yeah. like this if it wasn't for the Australian Museum. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I am, yeah, it's, it's blown my mind. And yeah. I think there's like a couple of things, like it's been, there's been some really depressing, it's generally depressing in frog conservation because there's typically not, like frogs are amazing and so you get to have these amazing times and see them in the field and there's, there is still exciting discoveries, new species, you know, up to 20% of Australian frogs are still undescribed. Six species of frog were described in the last couple of years in Australia. Like it's insane, we still have so much to learn. Um, but at the same time, you mm. know, every time I give a talk, I have to uh, add, check the threatened species list and probably add a few more frogs to that, you know. Um, there's all this bad news. Yes. And yeah. in winter 2021, when all the frogs were dying and again I was in lockdown and I couldn't get out there and I was just getting 200 emails a day of sick and dead frogs in my inbox, videos of dead frogs, before and afters of dead frogs, you know, just, I was, it was, it was one of the worst times of my life. It was so awful. Yeah, but yeah. both Frog ID and and very related, it was all the people that were like ziplocking dead frogs and putting them in the freezers for us to collect later. And we had, mm. I think, more than 500 people across New South Wales ziplocked us frogs and, mm. and we came and picked them up later, which is amazing. Like, that's a big ask and mm. people did it. Yeah. Um, it's a big ask to stand in the, you know, middle of winter and record frog ID. You know, it's it, all these things that people are doing. So as depressing as it was, I think the thing that it actually came out as a positive because I realised that, you know, I wasn't alone. Yeah. That there were hundreds of thousands of people out there across Australia recording frogs, picking up dead frogs, ziplocking yes. frogs, taking photos. People care. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that's the only way that we're going to turn things around. Mm. I do think we're at a really pivotal time. We're on the cusp where we've got 40 species of frog threatened with extinction. We've got about 17, I think, that are like critically endangered, which is the step before they completely fall off the perch. Probably some of those are already extinct. Um, but we have the power to like find those populations of threatened species before they become extinct, to maybe rediscover things. Like we all have this power now in our hand with Frog ID. Mm. Um, yeah, and there, and there are people that care. So mm. yeah, it, it's given me so much hope. Yes. Um, yeah. And that we're an army of people working together and, yeah. and the hopefully things like, you know, generating this sort of mass care over frogs yeah. hopefully will feed up and yes. changes will amazing. happen. Amazing. Um, so look, thank you so much for that incredible um, background. And I was, one, I was thinking now, should we have a look at some of the frogs, um, perhaps five species, and uh, let's have a look at them and perhaps you can chat a little bit about who they are and where they live and what they sound like. Fantastic. Yeah.
right. So well, there's four, four very yeah. common species. Yeah. So this frog here, the common eastern froglet, um, you may have never seen because I, they are so hard to find. So they are typically quite camouflaged, uh, probably less than two centimetres in body length. But they are one of the most, well, they are the most commonly recorded frog in the Frog ID database. Most people don't realise that it's a frog because they sound a lot like a cricket. And when people ask me, um, you know, how can you tell the difference between a frog and a cricket? I'm like, it's hard. So that's why we don't mind. If you record a cricket, we'll let you know. But yeah. it, it's not an easy, like, a frog is this and an insect is this. Sometimes they're... So yeah. this one's a great impersonator. Um, and uh, it commonly calls throughout winter as well. Um, it's also one of the main frogs in Australia that will call during the day. Um, so they're very unfussy about where they live. Um, and I had one of my students, Gracie Liu, doing a PhD, looked at sort of which frogs like modified environments and which frogs didn't. Surprise, 70% of the frogs did not like modified environments. Um, but this guy, I was surprised because they didn't actually prefer modified environments. Um, they just don't care at all where they, where they are. They'll breed like in a flooded gutter. Um, and their call... So it's a couple nice. of them. That's one. So quite insect-like. They occur uh, along much of the east coast of Australia, and I think we've got something insane, like 40,000 submissions um, of this species mm. from Frog ID. I'm lucky enough to have that guy in my backyard pond sometimes, ah, okay. although he leaves yeah. me and it upsets <laughs> me. So he croaks in my pond and I record him with frog ID and then yeah. all of a sudden I hear him like two doors down. I'm like, come back. <laughs> like, first of all, how does a frog this big just go like backwards yeah, and so forwards? But I know it's Leroy, that's his name. <laughs> so um, who's, who's the next guy? We've got another guy. Striped yeah. marsh frog. Striped marsh, yeah. um, this is yeah. quite common in, throughout the East Coast again. So throughout Sydney, it's one of the most common frogs. Uh, again, a lot of people don't know that it's it's a frog. Yeah. Um, a, it is the frog that's responsible for those foamy masses of eggs. So if you have a backyard pond that you get a little foamy mm -hmm. sort of mass on, yeah. this is this is your. That's a boy. This is your guy. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you can tell males and females. Males have slightly fatter arms, like they've been working out, um, and females have really skinny arms. That's one of the ways. But like some of the, that's not a particularly buff guy. But like <laughs> some of them have like massive beefcake arms, and and I think that could be for wrestling, but probably also for just grabbing onto the female when when it's ready to go. And females have a, a sort of a flap or a flange on their fingers that they use to whip up the eggs, um, and, the, and this is sort of secretions that come around the eggs to make a little foamy nest and that's a way that they're sort of trying to protect their babies so things like fish and stuff can't immediately get at them because they're in this foamy thing and also if a snake wants to try and eat them you get like a mouthful of like gross foam and stuff so they're, they're trying. Um, the best story I heard about these guys' calls, I'll tell before we hear the call, was from someone that was telling me they thought for ages they lived, they, they lived next to a golf court, um, a tennis court and they said for ages they thought the tennis court was haunted because they someone was playing tennis every night. Ah, and then it turned it out it was amazing. one of these guys. Yeah. Let's hear it. Ah. Which it kind of does. It does. It does sound like tennis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit like a dripping tap for some people yeah. if you've got one. If you've got a lot calling in your pond, it, it sounds like you've got popcorn going on. Yes. Or a lot of people playing tennis vigorously. Fabulous. Yeah. Great.
great. And so who's the, now we're on to the Eastern, oh, sorry. Yeah. So the, the tennis player is probably about this big, yeah. Great. And now, who's this next? This is the Eastern Banjo Frog, yeah. which has another common name of the Pobble Bonk, or I heard the other day, Bottle of Plonk. <laughs> So it sounds a lot like their call if you say like bottle of plonk, bottle of plonk. So they're like bonk, bonk, which yeah. I guess you can. So you can see why they're called the banjo frog. If you get a lot of them, they really do like like it, it sounds very musical. Um, these aren't in most of sort of inner Sydney, but if you go to a property just outside of your Airbnb for the weekend or, or somewhere, you'll probably hear these in the dams. Um, they are in some bush and stuff around Sydney, um, particularly, I think they're, they're in Royal, and, and so as soon as you start going sort of into the country in a dam, you'll find these guys. They're related to the striped marsh frog, so the sort of tennis call you can hear, their call's a little bit similar. One's like a donk, and the other one's like a bock. Um, these are a bit bigger, a bit rounder, and they're very much a burrowing frog. So in the drought, you won't hear or see these guys. They stay underground and they're waiting for it to rain. Um, and one time I was surveying in the field on the Northern Tablelands and we were, it was sort of, there were storms in the area, but we, you know, we were surveying, we had to go down this gorge and then we, you had to just go all the way down the gorge and you couldn't get out because it was too steep. And then going back to the cars, you'd get out of the gorge and walk up the hill. I remember getting down to the bottom and walking up and then all of a sudden there was just all these banjo frogs sitting on the ground and we're like, oh God, it's yeah. going to rain. Yeah. And then that was when it was <laughs> one of the, like, the craziest field experiences where it just started storming, pouring, yeah. lightning. We were actually took our headlamps off and we're like running like along the ground so we didn't wow. get hit by lightning. Yeah. And then when we started to drive out, a tree was just on fire, like oh, right next to the car. And so I'm like, oh my God, we were on private land, yeah. so we can't just leave their tree burning. Yeah. Like, because they let us go look for frogs. They didn't live there. They had cattle on the property. Yeah. So then we get like our drink bottles and we're like, you know, yeah. make the tree not be on fire because we didn't want their property to burn down in our watch. But the frogs knew. So they yeah. knew exactly that it was about to rain and they all just popped up and we were and like, just, oh no. Yeah, <laughs> it's here we go. Rain. We're in for it. <laughs> Amazing. And next up is this is Tell one of my favourite frogs. Yeah. This is Perrin's tree frog, also okay. called the emerald spotted tree frog. Uh -huh. And you can see the tiny little yeah. emerald spots. Um, they are, well, green tree frogs used to be really common in Sydney, um, but now they're not, unfortunately. This guy, though, thankfully, is still common. And I have had one in my deck for a few, few weeks. I'm super excited because this is one of my favourite frogs. They have that sort of cross-shaped pupil. They vary, very sort of from almost a white colour to a sort of a dark brown. Um, and their call is excellent. My neighbours are going to love that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, tree frog, brilliant, toe pads, love some it. really sort of sexy legs. They get that sort of black yeah. and yellow flecking, and um, yeah, a really a really good frog. And they're sort of um, about that big. And if you build like a tree frog hotel, you know those PVC pipes that you can sort of put in the in the ground, you, you'll probably get these guys mm. um, hanging out in it if you're lucky. Fabulous. And we've got one last frog to have a little look at. Oh, yeah. 
This is one of my favourites, and this is a frog that we're incredibly lucky to have. It's only around the Sydney area, nowhere else, on that sort of Hawkesbury sandstone. Um, it's like a poison dart frog that everyone goes so crazy for, but we just don't realise there's something in our bush um, that is that awesome. Um, probably because they don't hop around during the day, you don't see them much above the leaf litter, you probably just hear them. I remember um, I live near Manly Dam and I, I took my dad for a walk one day when it was raining and um, I said, Dad, I want to show you one of these frogs. Um, and so it was, it was in the day, these guys were called during the day, especially if it's raining, and I was on my hands and knees and there's a weird thing with this group of frogs that if you yell at them, sometimes they just call back, so if you don't know where they are. So I'm on the ground going, hey frogs, <laughs> hey frogs, and they're like, eh. <laughs> They're like calling back at me and my dad, not being a frog biologist, didn't tell me that there was some joggers like running past. I'm on like the ground yelling at frogs and they were just like, oh. The but crazy woman. I actually yeah. lifted up some leaves and showed my dad this frog when it revealed its location. He just started crying because he had no idea, like he is a, a bit sensitive, but which is great. Um, <laughs> but like that he had this thing That's that was beautiful. calling in the bushland yeah. around him and those joggers had no idea yeah. as they were jogging past, and you know, that we have these precious jewels yes. that they're amazing. So they're only this big. Yeah. Um, they're called the red crown toilet for obvious reasons. They're, they're sort of very a little bit. They're very closely related to the corroboree frog. Uh -huh. So they're sort of brightly coloured frogs. They're way better than poison frogs because poison frogs get their poison from the things that they eat. So once you take them to captivity, they're done for. They need to get their poison from ants. These guys actually generate their own toxins, so they're way cooler. Um, and I mean, they're, they're not going to hurt you, but they're to, the warning colours are obvious. They're saying, don't eat me because I'm not good mm. to eat. Um, and they have these sort of poisons on their skin to help protect them. Um, their bellies are marbled black and white and it's like a fingerprint so you can identify individuals based on the colours of, of their bellies. Um, they're only in bushland around Sydney. They do persist in quite small patches of bush where, bush, we're really lucky, but they're very sensitive to urban development, any kind of changes in hydrology because they have this fantastic way where they don't lay their eggs in water, they lay them in these kind of temporary sort of rivulets. Um, so it'd be dry, maybe just under the leaf litter they lay their eggs and their eggs can pause their development and wait for rain basically which is crazy and then as soon as it rains they sort of wash down in these sort of little things and then develop into little frogs um, and so anything that makes the water more permanent or makes the water sort of change the way it moves in the landscape and, and also removes leaf litter which they need um, is, is really detrimental to them so their, their call is a little bit similar to the common eastern frog but much, much more squelchy let's hear it a very normal one. Some, they often also do like a Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, so now that we're a little bit more familiar with the frogs, uh, Jody is very also going to kindly tell us some five simple things we can do to help them survive. Um, so let's start with you were talking about your own backyard. What are some of the things people can do to provide a frog friendly habitat? Uh, so, uh, yeah, about a year ago I moved to, f to a place that had a little backyard and I could make a pond for the first time, which is something I've been wanting to do. I did have a bowl of water on my balcony and, and frog hotels, so there's a few things. So, everyone thinks of a pond when it comes to frog 
you know, making your, your garden frog friendly. And you can definitely do that. Um, and I've done that and I love it. And I, I just think it's so crazy. Like I built this pond that wasn't there before. Um, and then within, you know, weeks I had giant dragonflies. I had a white faced heron. Like it's just, I'm like, how do these things find? Like this is just crazy. Um, and then in maybe three weeks I had a common eastern froglet. In a couple of months I had a striped frog and I, I this year, so about a year later, it's the first time I've heard a parent's tree frog. I like, lose my mind that this thing is calling in my backyard. So it's really true that if you build it, they will come. You don't ever move frogs around. They, uh, uh, even if you don't know it, there are frogs bouncing around your backyards and even onto your balconies. Um, but they won't stop and call unless you've got somewhere for them to breed. So if you can build a frog pond, if you've got them... Um, I mean, I built it way up against my deck because I'm hoping my neighbours don't start complaining. Like, so I, you know, you don't want to build it under someone else's bedroom window. Um, so put it, I put it right up against my house so it annoys my guests. Um, and uh, so I guess that's great. Um, you'll only get frogs that like those small temporary ponds if that's what you can build though. So you'll get the striped marsh frogs, the parents tree frogs. Um, so it, it doesn't, um, I guess, provide breeding habitat for any, everything. Yeah. You can get a raised bathtub sometimes, so that'll be just tree frogs, the ones that can climb up with their little toe pads. Mm -hmm. um, you can build tree frog hotels, so that's, if you Google, you can see some fantastic sort of stuff about that, basically PVC pipes, even bamboo pipes. I've got a terracotta pipe. You just stick them in the ground, um, bury them so that they're stable, and tree frogs really love hanging out during the day. So they need shelter sites too, so whether it's lo logs and things on the ground for frogs, or sort of lamandra, big prickly grasses and things that the frogs can get under um, during the day for the ground frogs, tree frog hotels for the tree frogs. Um, and you know, limit pesticide use um, as much as possible. Um, keep your dog and or particularly cats inside at night. They love playing with a, a frog, and mm -hmm. there's been some sort of work to try and figure out how much cats eat frogs. But that's tricky because frogs sort of dissolve really quickly as mm -hmm. once they come out the other end. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just every sort of little thing that you can do to particularly. Frogs are very sensitive to any kind of chemicals you put in your garden. Um, you'll notice you'll never see a frog just licking, you know, water up with their tongue or anything like that. They drink through their belly um, and they don't really get a say what goes in through their belly. So if they're sitting, you know, in, in water or anything that has, you know, any kind of pesticides, um, then it will just suck straight into their belly. They've, they've got no choice. Mm. Um, mm. So just those little things that you can do, but really build it, they will come. I don't yeah. know how they find ponds. I don't know if they smell them. Yeah. Like, I, I don't understand, but they will, will find, yes. find that pond. Yeah, brilliant. What about safe frogging? What's that? Tell us a little bit about Well, what? I guess I'll just... If I, I, I guess before safe frogging, download the Frog ID app, um, learn what frogs are around you. So that can also inform what frogs that you're going to tailor habitat to in your backyard. If you're in Newtown or you know somewhere that, that's quite built up, you'll probably only get those three. Um, you know, frogs that will come to you. Um, if you're a little bit further out, you might have red-crowned toadlets in the bush down the road, so you might be able to help do some bush regeneration and protect that area. And if development's coming up, you might want to say, hang on a second, um, there's red-crowned toadlets there because I've recorded all these red-crowned toadlets with Frog ID, and maybe you want to really, at least, if you're not going to, if you are going to do the development there, then you might have to put some mitigation in place so that the frogs are not going to be as impacted by it. So getting Frog ID records from your local area, knowing what you've got, that 
that's a really big step. If you've got a country property or, or somewhere like that or your family does, then knowing what frogs are likely to be there and what might be in the stream, what you might want to actually, you know, fence cattle off in a particular area because that's a really important breeding habitat for an endangered frog. Mm. Get out there, record frogs, know what frogs are around you and the safe frogging is but safety for yourself first, so making sure you don't go anywhere super dangerous, that you're really careful, but also for the frogs. So um, generally, um, not touching frogs, you know, is a really big part of, of frog ID. Um, frogs don't love being handled. Um, if you've got any sunscreens, insect repellents, they'll get sucked straight into the frog. Um, and the bigger thing, I guess, is, is about disease. So frogs are impacted by a disease. It doesn't affect us, but it affects them, and we're all very familiar with the whole pandemic scenario now. Frogs have had a pandemic affecting them for decades. Mm. Um, and one of the ways that you can transmit and, and more impact your frogs, which is definitely what you don't want to do, is if you touch one frog, then touch another frog, then touch another frog, then you're probably just spreading germs right. around. Yeah. Um, if you move frogs, obviously, you know, when people say, oh, I need some tadpoles for my pond, it's like, oh God, no, just wait for them, wait for them to come, they'll yeah. come. You don't want to move any bugs around the place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, making sure your footwear and stuff doesn't have sort of frog habitat mud that you go from one place to another and kind of move diseases around. So yes, just yeah. being as conscious as possible that you don't disturb the habitat, don't disturb the frogs, yep. um, don't accidentally negatively impact on, on the frogs while we're all trying to do yes. our best to, to yeah. save them. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much for coming and your support and especially to Jodie for sharing her expertise. Um, I hope you've all learnt a lot and uh, perhaps we can just finish with what, what your hopes are for Frog ID Week next week. Yes. So we have from next Friday yeah. uh, until the 20th. So it is, I know it's a week, it's longer than a week. Um, it's a sneaky week. It starts on Friday and ends like the following Sunday. Yeah. But it's to try and make sure everyone gets a, a part. Um, we're hoping to beat last year if we can as well, which is going to be a really big uh, call because I think it was 38,000 records of frogs. Um, in that sort of 10 days. So if you can, every day that you can or every night that you can, you know, at one place, at least one recording, if you've got a frog in your backyard, if you could take the dog for a walk and try and, um, I'm that creepy person that's near people's backyard ponds pressing record on Frog ID, try and get as many re recordings as you can. And um, there, yeah, there would be, um, it's this annual snapshot every year that we're trying to, um, get where we get like just mass recordings and that's going to really help us understand the impacts of things like climate change to have this annual year-on-year -year repeat sort of recording um, and so there'll be leaderboards and all sorts of things so hopefully you can get on those leaderboards um, but yeah we're we're hoping it'll be another good year it's um, and this kind of data really helps us with understanding things like the impact of fire the impact of the mortality event all this kind of stuff just getting this really intense mm. Um, snapshot so I hope that everyone can take part and tell your friends uh, spread the word and and try and get as many people as possible recording frogs because um, it really is uh, a game-changer and it's thanks to every single one of you thank you thank you so much <laughs> there's Devonshire tea waiting as well too so, so I might go wander and have yeah. a look at the frogs. We've got an eastern yeah. banjo frog and a green tree frog. Um, and then you can come have a look and then, and then head out for some scones. Mm. Yeah. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.